Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome back to Hold the Line. This is actually my second attempt at recording this episode. I recorded it earlier today and whilst I think I got the point across, it was just too waffly, so I deleted it. I thought that would be quicker than just editing it and cutting things out and pasting things together and all the rest of it. I've deleted it. I've started all over again from scratch with the objective of being concise and precise. Concise and precise. Anyway, it's not starting well. Let's have a go. In my defense, I have puppy brain. In fact, I think I've probably had puppy brain for several years now because we bred a litter of puppies in 2019 and we kept one of those puppies. Then we got our GSP puppy. And that was in May 2020, just after the start of lockdown. And then we obviously just now got our Vimerana puppy, Rosh. So we've got, we've had like, I feel just just over puppied at the moment. I mean, they are all fantastic, but I would just like a little bit more of my life back now. Anyway, I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about. So I'm going to get on with the first subject of today's podcast. All the line. So I had a question by email this week, and it was a question about crate training and noise in the crate. And I just want to say a few things about this, because I think that it's something that I've got something to say about. (laughs) I have an opinion on this one. So I think this is one of those subjects with a baby puppy that I'm a little bit reluctant to approach in terms of pure learning theory, meaning if the puppy is making noise, Don't go back to the puppy, because if you go back to the puppy when they're making noise in the crate, you're reinforcing the noise and it will only get worse because behavior that you reinforce is going to occur more frequently and so on and so forth. And so what that point of view would have you do is wait until the behavior of whining or crying or barking, whatever, extinguishes. And at that point, go back to the puppy, bearing in mind that with extinction, there's often an extinction burst just before the behavior extinguishes. So it may, it may appear to get worse. And it's really important at that point that you don't go back to the puppy. So this is what learning theory would say about crate training generally, if we were just approaching it in terms of it being a pure behavior. And this is why I think that this kind of purist approach to training dogs and this kind of all-embracing learning theory is everything attitude kind of lets us down and lets dogs down a little bit as well. So... I just want to say all of that and then park it a little bit on one side and now talk about attachment theory a little bit. And we'll come back to dogs and crate training and puppies and all the rest of it in a minute. But firstly, attachment theory. So attachment theory is very widely accepted now by, well, people who are looking at human psychology, at least. We'll get on to dogs later. So it was devised by British psychologist John Bowlby, and he was the first, I guess you could say, attachment theorist. And he sort of described attachment as a quote-unquote lasting psychological connectedness between human beings. And he was particularly interested in understanding separation anxiety, so think about that when you're thinking about create training a puppy, and distress that children experience when they're separated from their primary caregivers usually they're parents, but primary caregivers are not always parents. So they tend to say caregivers in attachment theory. So some of the earliest behavioral theories, like the the theories that predated Bowlby and that that were around before, suggested that attachment was just a learned behavior. So these, these theories that we had before sort of thought that it was all about feeding 
babies and children. And it was all about, you know, the the feeding relationship and the the caregiver feeds the child and that's why the child cares about the person because that's who feeds them. So does it remind you of anything in terms of dogs? Um, and so these earlier theories reckon that that's why the child gets attached to the caregiver because the caregiver provides the food. So Bowlby actually observed, though, that even feeding did not diminish or or help the child cope with the anxiety that they experienced when they were separated from their caregivers. So if the child was removed from the caregivers slash parents and someone else fed the child, that didn't help the child. The child didn't feel, oh, I'm okay now. I don't need mum or dad or whoever it is because I've got food from somewhere else. So it's okay. That didn't work. <laughs> so Bowlby theorized that attachment was actually not anything to do with this food stuff. Um, and that it's kind of about clear behavioral motivation patterns in terms of seeking proximity from something that helps you feel safe when you feel scared. So when children are frightened, they will seek proximity from their primary caregiver in order to help themselves feel safer again. So that's just kind of a sort of um, probably instinctive thing that they want to do when they feel a bit overwhelmed. And so this is this is kind of the bedrock, as it were, of attachment theory. And Bowlby thought that these early bonds that form between children and their caregivers have a, a big impact in terms of the the ongoing development of the child and how they grow up and the adult they grow up to be. So they're quite formative in that respect and can influence the way that the the child as an adult relates to other people. So romantic partners or significant other people in their life later on. Um, so his sort of theory about the function of attachment theory was that it it serves to keep the baby close to the mother and imp uh, therefore improves the baby's chances of survival because the mother is there and at hand. So that's kind of, um, I think that's probably attachment theory in a nutshell. But the other thing to say about it is just to talk about successful attachment in human terms and what that means. So behaviorists believe that as I said, this was about food and that food led to attachment behavior and that Bowlby disproved that. He believed that demonstrating nurturance and responsiveness were the primary determinants of attachment. So that if the caregiver could respond to the child's needs, then that would be a responsive caregiver and hopefully that would end up with a securely attached child. So it's all about this responsiveness, meaning that the parent hears when the the baby or child is in distress in some way and responds to that, doesn't ignore that, doesn't overlook that, doesn't always get it wrong in terms of what it is that's causing the distress, but often enough gets it right. So, you know, a baby, for example, might cry because, I don't know, they're hot or they're cold or they're hungry or they need their nappy changed and it's uncomfortable um, and so on and so forth. There's lots of different reasons. Maybe they need winding, whatever it is, that might make the baby cry. And the responsive caregiver would hear those cries and do something about it, basically. So this is... This allows the infant or and the child as they grow up to experience the other, the caregiver, as someone who is is available and present and able to help them when they feel that they're uncomfortable, they're in distress, they're scared, they're worried, there's something not right for them. So rather than leaving the baby or the child with those really difficult feelings and not being able to do anything about them, not being able to make things better the responsive caregiver hears that the child is in need of something and responds to that and helps the child manage those those difficult feelings and transform them into something that is more bearable and and better basically so that sort of awareness of there being someone out there who can help you feel better is significant 
And over time, that creates a secure base for the child to then go out and explore the world. So you can kind of extrapolate from that, that the child will believe that other people are available, that if, if in your future life stuff happens and you feel crappy about it, that you can turn to other people and other people will be there and they will be able to listen to your um, your kind of difficult feelings and help you manage those. Rather than, you know, I guess the opposite, feeling that there's no one out there, no one can help you, no one really cares anyway, no one wants to hear anything about your problems and so on and so forth. That would be another way that someone could grow up. So this is kind of attachment theory in a nutshell. And I just want to tell you about one other little um, experiment, which I think is relevant as well and is kind of on the same subject. So this is a very famous experiment. So Harry Harlow... He did some, well, probably infamous um, experiments um, on the, in, in terms of maternal deprivation and social isolation. And he used baby rhesus monkeys for this. So this was during the 1950s and 1960s. I doubt very much you get permission to do this experiment now. Um, so he was exploring early bonds. And what he did in this experiment is he separated these newborn monkeys from their birth mothers. And... Basically, the the infant monkeys were placed in cages and they had the choice of two different quote-unquote mothers, surrogate mothers, not real mothers. So one of the surrogate mothers was kind of a wire coat hanger kind of a thing um, and it held a bottle. So there was, there was milk there on that wire coat hanger mother. And then the other mother was soft and comfortable it was a terry cloth and it was cushioned and it was cuddly but it didn't have any milk didn't have any food so what what he found happened is the infant monkeys would go to the wire mother to get their food but they would spend all their time with a soft comforting terry cloth mother and when the baby monkeys were scared they would go to the cloth covered mother for comfort and security not to the wire mother with the food so that again disproves the idea of this being about food and about feeding and about um you know the 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 child slash puppy slash dog cares about whoever because they're who feeds it so okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor but I don't have a sponsor, so instead, I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. That kind of disproves that again. Um, So Harlow's work also demonstrated that early attachments are the result of receiving comfort and care from a caregiver rather than the result of just being fed. So those are the really important things to kind of say which are relevant. Now, there are different patterns of attachment and the different ways that attachment can develop in a non-ideal way. So... um, I don't want to go into this in too much detail because it is very, very interesting, but it's very detailed and complicated. And there are many different ways that everything can split off in different directions. And we can be talking forever about this instead of dogs. Um, <laughs> so 
I think we'll just say, first of all, though, is about secure attachment, because we need to describe the kind of the optimal thing. So children who can sort of depend on their caregivers and they know that they are there for them, as it were. So when these children are separated from their caregivers, they're upset for sure. That's a normal, understandable response. So they might cry or or show, um, I guess you could say, separation anxiety. Um, and then when they're reunited with their caregivers, they are happy and um, able to show that they're happy. So they're not hiding that happiness or acting in a distant, rejecting way towards the caregiver. They're happy again um, and welcome the caregiver back again. So the child is upset, but they kind of also know that the caregiver is going to come back. So, yeah, so when they're frightened, when they're scared, children with secure attachment are comfortable seeking reassurance from caregivers and they, they will turn to caregivers for comfort and they know that there is there is a being out there, benevolent and caring being who's going to help them feel better is, I think, a good way to summarize it. So then there are some ways that attachment can develop in a sort of suboptimal way. And this can be the result of many different things. So it could be the result, maybe caregivers are neglectful or abusive. Maybe maybe when the baby or child is crying, they don't respond. They don't come to the child. So the child grows up learning that there is not actually a person out there who's going to help you feel better, that you're just stuck with your terrible feelings and you just better deal with them by yourself. Or even worse than that, that if you're crying and you're upset, your caregiver might come and shout at you or shake you, or hit you, or something scary, which, I mean, your caregiver is there, so I guess there's part of you which feels reassured that you're not alone anymore, but then the caregiver hurts you and does something that is scary and and results in fear. So that's quite a, a conflicted experience. And these types of um, child raising can result in ambivalent attachment, avoidant attachment, disorganized attachment. So these are sort of suboptimal ways that things can develop. So let's just say, I think we could probably just leave attachment theory there. It's probably enough about attachment theory. If you want to read more about attachment theory, I suggest that you go on Amazon and look for there's a book called A Secure Base, or it could be The Secure Base by John Bowlby. And there's also, if you want to sort of where things are now, take on take on it. I highly recommend a book called Why Love Matters by Sue Gerhard. And I think it's got a subtitle, How Affection Shapes a Baby's Brain. I think that's what it is. So Why Love Matters, How Affection Shapes a Baby's Brain by Sue Gerhard. A Secure Base by John Bowlby. And then, oh yes, there's another good one. Um, the Making and Breaking of Affectional Bonds by John Bowlby as well. So this is like stuff that is out there. It's very readable. It's not, you're not going to kind of struggle to read this stuff. It's really readable. It's accessible. Anyone can pick this up and read it. So it's quite interesting as well, actually. So I highly recommend all of this. So let's go back to animals as well, because Bowlby actually didn't think this was just about humans. So although he's talking mainly about caregivers and about people and human development, he actually applies it to all mammals pretty much. So he thinks that this is something which is cross-species. And in fact, there are, there is some evidence that he's right with that. And we do have some studies which support what he says. So there was a study, I think, with rat mothers raising rat pups. And what was found was that good rat mothers who licked their pups a lot and were very responsive to their pups. So if their pups squeaked or made noise or unhappy, the good rat mother would come and lick the pup a lot and really be there, respond to that noise. And generally, anyway, even if the pup wasn't squeaking, the mother was giving the pup a lot of attention, a lot of nurturing. So those puppies grew up to have good responses to stress, meaning they could tolerate stress well or better than the the poorly mothered rat pups whose mothers did not respond to their squeaks or took ages to respond to their squeaks. Um, 
So those puppies did not develop good um, sort of psychological mechanisms for responding to stress and were more affected by stress in adulthood when they grew up to be adult rats. So (laughs) those rats are not um, puppies or dogs. We can hypothesize there's pretty much the same thing going on there. So, you know, the good mother dog who licks her puppies a lot and is very nurturing of her pups and attentive to them is probably going to raise puppies that are better equipped to respond to stress than puppies which are ignored or or you know the the mother which doesn't respond to the squeaks and doesn't really want to raise the puppies properly and is a kind of a poor mother so we can extrapolate that as well so all this all of this is kind of pointing in the same direction and i think what's interesting is when we get to the situation where we have eight-week-old puppies that we take away from their mother, their dog mother, and siblings, and we, you know, they're, they're in a new environment, and we put them in a, in a cage, and we shut them in there. And when they make noise, we say things like, oh, you mustn't respond to the noise because then you're reinforcing the noise. And suddenly, we seem to be understanding all of this in a very different way, with very different parameters, and we and that's sort of a really sort of hardcore behaviorist approach to it, which doesn't sit right with me and with all of this other stuff that I know about. Um, so what does that mean? I think it means that we need to have attachment theory at the forefront of our minds when we're raising puppies. And that's how we need to be thinking about them in those early weeks that we're raising them. So if they are making noise in their crate, we need to be thinking about that as fear-based rather than as let me out of the crate based. Um, so, yeah, so that would be my sort of plea. And this comes from receiving emails from people whose puppies make noise in the crate and they don't understand why ignoring the noise isn't working and, you know, I think it's potentially very damaging. Like, there is some research which suggests with, with humans that letting human babies cry it out, cry themselves to sleep and not comforting them when they cry kind of is, is potentially damaging to the, the baby's brain in terms of the, the stress hormones of cortisol that is released when that happens. And not having, we can understand in terms of attachment theory, not having that maternal brain, as it were, to come along and help the baby feel better. So I think we need to be thinking about puppies a lot more in this way. And I'm kind of interested also to know, I mean, I don't think we have enough research on this yet, how this impacts in terms of the age that puppies go to their new homes. And if puppies will be um, less likely to display some of these behaviors if they went to their new homes at a later age, not at eight weeks, um, I don't think we have the research to to suggest that yet, but I do think that if you have a puppy coming at eight weeks, that you have to understand this is a really immature animal, that you are going to become its primary caregiver. You are going to become what it attaches to. I say it because we don't know if it's a he or she. Um, so you are going to become what he slash she, um, they <laughs> care about and attach to. And so all of this is potentially relevant in that way um and yeah my plea would be that we drop the sort of pure behaviorism when we approach puppies crate training and anything to do with separation and we start to think about this in terms of attachment theory when it comes to behavior so i hope that that makes some kind of sense by the way this has nothing to do with gun dog training whatsoever um (laughs) But, I mean, I guess it does in terms of it's beneficial for us all if we raise well-adjusted puppies that don't have separation anxiety. But apart from that, it doesn't. Um, But it's just something that I often have in my mind because I feel like, um, I don't know why, but I feel like... I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. Whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. 
so it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Behavioral work with dogs doesn't seem to acknowledge the existence of attachment theory and its relevance to anything, which I find really puzzling because it's never really been just about people. It's been sort of cross-species and to do with all mammals, at least in terms of John Bowlby's thoughts. And some of the research has involved um, monkeys and we've got research in rats that I touched on there and the other studies as well involving other um, other animals. And we just seem to be discounting it all. So I think we actually need to be having that in the forefront of our mind when it comes to puppies and separation issues. So anyway, that's nothing to do with gundog work. It's just me waffling about something that I care about. So anyway, let's get on and talk about some gundog stuff. Hold the line. So I've had a question from Matthew who says, Hello, Joe. I love your podcast and purchased your book several months ago. Thanks for the great content you create. I have a 14-week-old English Springer Spaniel from US Field Trial Lines. I would like to do the clicker retrieve with her when she is bigger. In one of your podcasts, you mentioned you do little puppy retrieves with your pups, just like traditional trainers. I've been trying to do that, and for the most part, it has been great. But my pup has never wanted to give the bumper to me, even after letting her hold it for a while, and recently growled when I took the bumper. So my question is, with a possessive pup or pup showing the beginnings of a major retrieving problem, would you put retrieving on hold for a while until she is big enough to start the clicker retrieve? Six months of age or so, or should I insert another solution, such as trading the bumper for a food reward so that puppy retrieves can continue? So far, this has been a very challenging independent pup, but she is very food motivated. I know you must get tons of questions and that you only have so much time in a day. So no worries if you don't get a chance to respond to my email or addresses on your podcast. So of course I have time to respond to your email, Matthew. Um, so yes, well, ah, there's lots of things I want to say about that. So the first thing I want to say is that I know you're concerned about the gundog side of things and about retrieving, but the really important thing here is is resource guarding and not letting that develop. So that has got to be your priority, especially as you've got a 14-week-old puppy who is growling at you. So growling is quite a big behavior for a little 14-week-old puppy to be doing. So it suggests to me that there is a history here of people taking things off the puppy. It may not be you, maybe other family members, but someone taking stuff off the puppy, whatever it is, socks, underwear, tissues, stuff the puppy picks up, which she's not supposed to have. Usually, you know, growling will not be something the puppy's going to do the first time something's taken from her. Oh, it's very unlikely anyway. So it's probably that this has happened many times before that people have taken stuff off her. So that is the first thing that we need to address, how to take stuff off a puppy without um, creating these problems. The other thing to say is that these problems are kind of on a continuum. So what I'm about to say is going to be relevant to anyone with, for example, keep away. So a puppy which um, isn't aggressive, it doesn't growl, but maybe dances around, doesn't want to come in, wants you to chase them to get the item off them, basically, and thinks this is a fantastic game. This, what I'm about to say now, is relevant to those um, puppies or dogs as well, as much as anything else. And it's relevant for the beginnings of resource guarding. 
So the first thing to say is it doesn't matter what happens with your retrieve. You have to be able to take things off your dog without creating conflict. And conflict arises because the dog perceives you as wanting the thing and they want the thing. So there's conflict there. So what we have to do is get rid of that conflict. We have to convey to the dog that we don't want the thing or we have to somehow get the thing off the dog without the dog realizing that that's what our objective is. So that's the situation. So this is what you're going to do. So firstly, you need food, which your puppy values enough to leave anything that she might reasonably pick up in the house. So some puppies, if they're very food motivated, will be happy to leave you know, your underwear or socks or whatever for kibble. And other puppies, just that wouldn't be reinforcing enough for them. They'd need something tastier. So you've got to kind of think about your individual puppy there. Pick something which you can have in many different places around the house and in pots in your pocket. So something which isn't going to go off. So probably fresh food isn't a good idea for this, unless you want to have lots of little pots of fresh food lying around, chopped up, prepared. Um, so you probably want to find something that you know, kibble is ideal if the pup does value kibble enough, or you could find some tastier dry, some tasty dry treats, which you can put in a pot. So freeze dried liver, for example, something which is going to store a little bit. And then you want to make sure that you have access to this food anytime the pup might pick something up. You have fast access to it. The reason for that is when puppies pick things up, people have this kind of almost instinctual knee-jerk reaction to get the thing off the puppy. And it might be because they're worried the puppy's going to eat it or they're worried the puppy's going to destroy it and it's something that they don't want the puppy to destroy. So it's one of those two reasons usually. So that means you need to be able to act quickly. And if you have to go to the kitchen and forage around in the fridge and get something out, it's just not going to happen fast enough. So you've got to make sure that whatever food you've got, you have it stored on your person, or maybe even a pot in every room of the house or every room the puppy could be in. So um, you need to prep all of that, basically. You could have little pots on bookshelves, mantelpieces. When I have a puppy, I always have little pots and I make sure that everybody in the household, which basically is me and my husband, <laughs> have a little pot in our pocket. Um, and I'm constantly refilling these pots. I'm constantly making sure there's treats in them. At the moment, we have pots and in our pots are some freeze-dried liver. So that's probably why it came to mind. So you want to make sure you've got something that you can reinforce. And by the way, you're going to use this for other things as well. Like puppy come in from outside. Here's a treat for coming in. Come through the stair gate. Here's a treat. Get off the sofa. Here's a treat. So you're going to be using this for all the little things that you need your puppy to do. Go in your crate. Here's a treat. So it's kind of really a good idea to have these little pots on your person anyway with a puppy. All right, so you've got your, you've got your treats and you've got your pots. So when your puppy has got something that you don't want them to have, I highly recommend that you don't put the treat on their nose, probably. So with some dogs, that works fine, putting the treat on their nose to try to get them to sniff it and to notice it. But with dogs which are showing resource guarding already, they've kind of already experienced hands coming towards their face as a threat to their possession of the object. So they think that you're coming to take it off them because a hand coming towards their face, that's what it usually means. And so it can actually make the guarding behavior worse. And some dogs may even snap at that point. Um, so you don't want to, I think, with a dog which is already showing guarding, put your hand directly towards their face or nose. The better thing to do instead is to get a few treats or pieces of kibble, whatever it is you've got, and throw them on the floor. So you're going to kneel down the floor in front of your pup and just toss the treats on the floor so they kind of, they fall in quite a small area. You don't want to, you know, scatter them all over the floor, but so they're in quite a small area in front of the pup, maybe a foot in front of their nose, um, two feet in front of their nose. And what I want you to do is value the treats. And by value the treats, I mean, you're going to pick up the treats and you're going to go, whoa, what is this? Look at this treat. Whoa. And you might kind of flick it along the floor like, I don't know, 20 centimeters, or you might drop it from above. So it hits the floor and rolls 20 centimeters. Um, but you're constantly like playing with the treats. And, you, and I want you to act as if you think those treats are like, I don't know, the most amazingly interesting things you've ever seen in your life. Um, so usually when you do this, when you value the treats, the puppy will drop the item that they have in their mouth because they want to eat the treats and because you're not paying any attention to the item. So you're not adding value to the items. That's another thing to say is that 
a lot of pups will end up valuing something more if you show interest in it because, hey, it's got to be something valuable if you want it too. So it's much better to feign complete disinterest in the thing that they have. So the pup's going to drop the item that they've got in their mouth. And this is the important bit, another important bit. I want you to not immediately try and grab that item after they've dropped it. Because if you're going to grab the item, they will see that you, you're doing this and they will also try and get it before you do again. And we both of you going for the item together and it rest- it kind of stirs up all of their that's mine feelings about the item and the guarding feelings and all of that stuff. It just gets stirred up again. So once the puppy has dropped the item, I want you to control yourself. <laughs> and this may require some self-control here because, you know, human instinct is to grab the thing as soon as it's let go of. Um, so control yourself and lure the puppy with the treats over the dropped item. So pick up one of the treats that you've got there on the floor and just lure, continue to lure the puppy forwards with, say, your right hand, so they're, they're lured right over it, they walk right over the item they dropped. While the puppy's eating the treats on the floor, and you can be pointing them out on the floor with your, with your right hand, or even feeding them from your hand if you want, um, with your other hand, behind the puppy's butt, you're picking up the item that they dropped. So when the puppy turns around, they see you just holding the item. They don't see you taking possession of it. And that's the important bit. You want to make sure you avoid the puppy seeing you actually take possession of the dropped item. Because that's what stirs up the that's mine feelings. And I don't know why this is. Why if they turn around and they see you already holding it, it doesn't stir up those feelings. If they see you reaching for it and grabbing for it, it does. So it's really important that you you do whatever you have to do with the food. So get more food out, get tastier food out, flick it around on the floor, continue to distract the puppy with the food until you see their attention is completely on the food. It's not on the item they've dropped. And then you can pick the item up when they're not looking. So you will kind of want to be watching the puppy while you're picking the item up because we're making sure the puppy is not looking at you while you're doing that so that is kind of how to take the thing off the puppy and by the way this is just a good preventative thing to do with all puppies so i would what i do with any puppy whether whether they're showing any signs of um resource guarding or not this is just how i would take stuff off a puppy it's just good practice basically and it's preventative because it will prevent these problems from developing and also prevents keep away as well so prevents this kind of puppy wanting to dance around at a distance and run off with things and it just makes there not be any conflict over who who possesses the thing (laughs) um and when you do the clicker retrieve that will further solidify the lack of conflict going on but this is kind of pre-clicker retrieve and there's a lot of problems that can develop before the clicker retrieve so that's the first thing i would say so moving on to the gun dog side of things oh before i leave that actually i should say that everyone in the household needs to know this so either you tell everybody do not take stuff off the puppy call me if the puppy picks something up which may or may not work for your household bearing in mind you may not always be in when the puppy picks something up Or you make sure there are pots of treats everywhere in every room around the house or make sure everybody has a pot of treats and you make sure that this protocol is followed. You show everybody how to do it and you make sure this is followed anytime the puppy picks something up. Um, But you've got to make sure that nobody is just walking up to the pup and taking stuff off them because that is dangerous, really, with a puppy like this. And you may want to also enlist the help of a force-free trainer in your area or behaviorist who can help you um, learn how to do this, how to take stuff off the pup without creating conflict. So all of this is kind of connected to retrieving, but it's also not connected to retrieving in that even if you didn't want to do any gun dog stuff with your puppy, you'd still want to be doing all of this because you don't want a dog that resource guards. So retrieving, the first thing I would say is don't worry about your delivery. So people, especially people starting out, are excessively obsessed with getting the thing in their hand. And this can create a lot of problems because your obsession with getting the thing in your hand and it not ending up on the floor leads to you trying to take stuff directly from the dog's mouth. And that is what creates a lot of these problems in the first place. So you have to just be okay for now with the item ending up on the floor, knowing all the time that when you do the clicker retrieve, you're going to iron all this out. And this is just going to be a non-problem as it were. So you will just get the delivery fixed when you do the clicker retrieve. So I don't want you to be obsessing about delivery, worrying about items getting dropped on the floor here or anything else. Um, That can all be fixed later. So, um, yeah, so basically you can do the same thing with your um, dummy. But what I'd suggest you do when it's a retrieve is if you've got your clicker, as your puppy brings the item back towards you, you can click while they're still holding it. And 
then you can get your treats out and you can play with them on the floor to get the pup to want to drop after the click. So remember with the click, the click ends the behavior. So what we care about is what's happened until the click. So if the puppy was holding it until you clicked, that's what you are clicking. So you don't need to then worry about the pup then spitting out on the floor. That's perfectly fine because you've clicked before that. So then you would just play with your treats on the floor. Um, and when the puppy is eating the treats on the floor and has their back turned, you can pick up the dummy. So that's one way you could do things. The other thing you could do is you could do the two dummy game, as it were, <laughs> two toy game. So for this, you need two identical dummies and they do have to be identical because you don't want the puppy to value one of them more than the other. So what you would do is, as per usual, you know, throw one out for the pup um, to go get. Pup goes to get that one. As the puppy is coming back to you, you are showing the puppy the second dummy and getting their attention on it and making it interesting. So you are valuing, quote unquote, the second dummy, not the one in the pup's mouth. You're going to act, you really don't care about what happens with the one in the pup's mouth. So the one you're holding, you are, you could be moving it along the floor like a little snake. You could be going woo 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 and wiggling it backwards and forwards in your hands. Um, you could be doing a little toss like half a foot in the air and catching it again. What you don't want to do is throw it or, you know, let go of it completely until the puppy has dropped their dummy on the floor, the one they're holding. So when the puppy drops the one that they're holding on the floor because they want the one that you have, then you throw the one that you have out and the puppy goes to get that one. When their back is turned, getting that one, you pick up the one they dropped and you're ready then to do the next rep. So they come back, they see you with this one that you just picked up um, and you just go around and around in circles like that with, with two dummies. To finish this game, you're going to need to get both dummies. So you are going to need to get the food out and you're going to need to do what I just described with the food for the last rep so that you can get the both dummies back if that makes sense so i hope that kind of helps and gives you some ways forward um i wouldn't just avoid this situation and not do any retrieving until your puppy is six months because your puppy is going to be picking stuff up around the house and you know objects tissues underwear whatever and you need to have a way of dealing with that and you need to be preventing resource guarding by doing the things that I just described. So the dummy is just another object like any other object. It's not like, um, I think sometimes people think in their, in their minds, they have objects divided up into retrieving objects like dumbbells and dummies and fur dummies and dockins, and then random junk that the dog might pick up in another category of their mind. And actually all of these things are things a dog can do retrieves with. They're all retrieve articles, really. And, you know, there are sports where all of these different random bits and pieces are actually retrieve articles that the dog is expected to pick up and retrieve to you. And in fact, when we do the clicker retrieve, we generalize it to all these different bits and pieces. So we generalize it to picking up a teaspoon, to picking up a bit of plastic pipe, to picking up a bit of hose pipe, to picking up a carpet sample. So like all these things that are just junk, really, we teach the dog that actually they're retrieve articles. So yeah, so all of these things, retrieve articles, the dummy is just another retrieve article and try not to keep it in this like separate category. It's just another thing that the dog can pick up and the dog needs to know how to deal with stuff they pick up without creating that sort of conflict situation or you need to know how to deal with the situation when the dog picks it up, if that makes sense. Um, all right, so I hope that helps. Let's move on. One more question. Hold the line. Okay, this is a big juicy meaty question from amy <laughs> that's i'm probably going to have to pull apart in a few different ways i did wonder if i could sort of summarize it somehow but i think that a lot of it is in the details so i'm going to read you her whole email which is hi joe i've been binging your podcast and i'm so grateful to have found it as i haven't found any positive reinforcement resources for gun dogs here in the u.s i currently have a six-month-old english setter pup whom I've been training through positive reinforcement, and in the past had an English setter who was more traditionally trained, both field-bred. I'm not a hunter and don't have plans to hunt with my pup. However, I want to foster her natural instincts and give her an outlet to hunt in the great suburban outdoors. Ultimately, I'd like to put hunting on cue, perhaps as pre-mac, allow her to free hunt in the garden without sabotaging our reinforcement history, teach her when it is and isn't appropriate to hunt, when to move on, and potentially be able to walk her off-leash, all while responding to obedience cues, and without worrying that she'll disappear on me. It's a tall order, but I want to educate myself on how positive reinforcement works, specifically in training pointing bird dogs. 
How do you build enough value on anything to be more reinforcing than a bird? How can such a thing exist? How to determine when the dog is ready to set up or train her first domestic bird exposure? How to train these first experiences? And what cues from the hunting world would be valuable for a pet setter to achieve these goals? I'm looking for training that takes into consideration the bird dog's genetic challenges rather than formal gun dog training to hunt. I'm hoping you can recommend resources or if your book or a specific online course would be appropriate given my goals. Positive reinforcement trainers here seem to have little to no experience with bird dogs. They've instructed me to extinguish and prevent all hunting behaviours because bird instincts are genetically too strong with rushes of hormones and it's an OCD behaviour. Thus, if I allow hunting, I will have questionable obedience and the two cannot coexist. I've received zero input on how foundational training might be approached or utilised differently, unique to the pointing instinct. It's as if her genetic instincts are a problem to be corrected in the positive reinforcement realm. On the other side, bird dog trainers have recommended shot collars and pinch collars, how infuriating on both fronts. I prevented my pup from any game bird exposure and fear that I might introduce it inappropriately and make future training more difficult. Your podcast episode 51 was a huge light bulb moment for me in understanding the importance of controlled bird exposure in the context of positive reinforcement values, why it's different from traditional training and how free hunting in the garden might sabotage training. Thank goodness for that episode because I've been concerned and asked my trainers weeks ago if garden free time might ruin reinforcement values with me. Unfortunately, I was given poor advice and now I have to fix a lizard reinforcement history, which my setters think are wonderful bird substitutes. I've limited my pup's exposure to lizards, which is challenging as they're ubiquitous and dumb like bugs. If she's in a space where she doesn't know where to find lizards, she's able to focus, respond to cues, and I'm able to get her to ignore dogs, people, the whole gamut. But I'm at a loss with lizards aside from management. I struggle to get her to take any reinforcement around them. I imagine the procedures would be similar to the more challenging bird. Should I extinguish the lizard hunting behavior? Should I train it like you would for real game? Should I use a toy with a pheasant scent? That would be more reinforcing, or would I be opening a can of worms? Am I doing the right thing and not giving her any outside off-leash time as a management strategy? The set of bird brain is one of the many things I adore about the breed, and knew what I was signing up for and getting another one as a pet. I also knew I wanted to do better with this pup and felt that this was best achieved through positive reinforcement training. What I didn't expect is a challenge in getting support and help in the US on marrying the two things together, and the contradictions it's presented. It's disappointing that trainers here don't see the bird instinct as a training opportunity, but I'm grateful to have found hope in the UK. Look forward to hearing your thoughts and much appreciation for your podcast. Wow, Amy, that is like an epic email. You could probably answer that email in like multiple podcast episodes. <laughs> um, but we'll do our best. So the first thing I want to say is that I have difficulties with with the situation when people get dogs that have a lot of working ability, genetics, drive, whatever you want to call it. And they, because they don't want to hunt, they stay away from the whole gun dog thing because they think it's not relevant to them. And then they end up in problems later on, usually in early adolescence, because the dog finds for themselves the delights of the environment and the world and birds, or in your case, lizards. Um, and everything just falls apart and the handler becomes irrelevant because a dog thinks that this is the best thing ever, better than anything the handler could possibly provide. And everything just goes a bit pear-shaped. So, so that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing that I want to say is that I know this might be difficult to hear, but I think you have to train your dog as if the dog is going to be a working gun dog, because that is the way to be using force methods, teaching the dog to respond to you around these um, environmental, I don't want to use the word distractions, reinforcers, environmental reinforcers like birds, lizards, whatever. So I don't know if I'm expressing that very clearly. Basically what I'm trying to say is your task is the same task that someone who wants to train their dog to be a gun dog faces. And so the solution and the approach to training is going to be the same. It's not the case that because you don't want to hunt with your dog, there's a completely different pathway. That's just not, that's not how it goes because your dog doesn't know what you want to do with it. And, you know, your dog is going to discover for themselves how amazing the world is. So I hope that that makes some kind of sense. So that means that what I'm going to say is 
is going to be talking about training a dog to be a gun dog and all the rest of it, because that is the pathway to go down. So I'm just going to go through your email. And the first thing I want to say is that I'm not entirely sure what you mean by a couple of sentences because they're a bit vague. So things like, I want to foster her natural instincts and give her an outlet to hunt in the great suburban outdoors. And for example, allowing her to free hunt in the garden. So I'd want to know what you mean by giving her an outlet to hunt. So what what is she hunting in the garden if it's not lizards? Um, and what does that mean? What does that look like? What is the picture of that? I don't know how big your garden is, for example. It might be I don't know, many fields worth of garden, <laughs> or it might just be a suburban garden. I don't know. So I don't really know what, what I'm looking at in my mind when I imagine the thing that you're kind of describing here. Okay, so let's move on. So the next thing is this idea of putting hunting on cue and being able to tell her when when it isn't isn't appropriate to hunt, when to move on, um, and so on and so forth. Being able to walk her off leash while responding to obedience cues, without worrying that she'll disappear on me. Um, so look, there's different ways to approach this and it very much depends on the dog as well and the individual dog and the breed of dog, the dog's instincts, how much working blood is in the dog. But if you do have a dog that has a strong desire sort of genetically and on their pedigree to hunt and comes from strong field lines, it's going to be very difficult when that dog is off leash in a rural environment for them not to hunt whatever cue you've given them. And the reason for that is because the cue is the environment. So I think I might have talked about this on the podcast before, whereby if you have an agility dog, when you go into an agility ring, you want your dog to be having agility thoughts. With an obedience dog, if you go into an obedience ring, the dog sees the, I don't know, white fences or whatever it is. I don't really know very much about obedience um, and starts to have obediency thoughts. So the environment itself is part of the cue, contextual cue for the dog to kind of um, be thinking about what behaviors are going to be expected there. So when you're in a rural environment with a dog, which either you've taught to hunt or has taught themselves to hunt, then that environment is going to be cueing, hunting, hunting, hunting all the time. <laughs> and your little verbal cue um, is going to be struggling against that much, much stronger environmental cue. So... So that's the first thing that I want to say. So, however, if you don't want to compete with your dog, you're not really, you know, you, you're not going to be wanting a dog to range really far, to look really Im impressive in terms of um, hunting ability for competition. So you could just sort of say, right, scrap all of that. I'm just going to focus on staying connected to me and training the dog that they can hunt, but they can hunt close to me and working on that side of things. So really to achieve that, any training that you do with your dog in a rural environment, which involves you and the dog and you providing the dog with reinforcement, whether that's toys or food or whatever, then that is going to be strongly um, conditioning the dog to look to you as the provider for reinforcers in a rural environment like that. The more walking around and you not saying anything, not interacting with the dog and just letting the dog interact with the environment that you do, the more that the dog is going to be learning to look to the environment for reinforcers. So if you've got a dog that you don't actually want to hunt and you don't actually want to compete with and you just want to be able to walk about outdoors with without losing them, then you definitely want to be doing a lot of um, teaching your dog to anything really you can do any sort of obedience stuff with your dog you can do retrieves i highly recommend that you do the clicker retrieve and that you do retrieving drills because that's going to provide your dog with exercise but exercise which is focused on you so anything like that sort of stuff that you can do with your dog which involves you and the dog and you providing the reinforcement in a rural environment is going to be strengthening strengthening those muscles as it were um, and helping the dog learn to look to you out there so that was that's the first thing that I would say. Whether that's going to be enough for a dog which is bred to find, you know, to want to hunt basically, and whether that's going to be enough to counter the sort of environmental cue of um, the smell of game and everything else, I don't know. But that, if you want to give it a go, that is the best approach and that's the best thing to be doing. Um, all right, so let's move on with your question. Um, how do you build enough value on anything to be more reinforcing than a bird? How can such a thing exist? So 
that's a very good question, actually, and it's important as well because. So, firstly, let's talk about um, what happens when the dog finds game. So, when the dog finds game, they ultimately, uh, ultimately, they want to usually chase and get the game. So, the bit of the sequence that the dog finds reinforcing may vary from one dog to another. So, one dog may really like the chase. So, they don't really care about whether they actually get the thing at the end of the chase. They just love chasing something. <laughs> um, another dog might actually want to get the thing. Um, another dog, once they've got the thing, might really want to play tug with you with the thing. Um, so basically the part of the, of the sequence that they find reinforcing is going to vary from one dog to another. Um, and you kind of have to think about which bit, um, your dog values most because that's going to inform how you use reinforcers when you are using things like tugs and stuff. So the things about tugs and tuggy play, firstly, is that Yes, there is a, a specific online course that you can take, which will take you through all of this. And it's my online course called Steady. And that is all about teaching a dog to be steady on point and teaching a dog to be steady to flush. And it's done all using toys. So it's perfect for you, really, because it doesn't involve any birds or um, contact with birds. And the outcome or the sort of happy byproduct of doing this is that you end up with a dog which really values the flirt pole or the tuggy or whatever, because that's what you've been using to train it for with. If that makes sense. Um, so basically the flirt pole or the tuggy on the steady course is both at first the thing that the dog is pointing or the thing that the dog is um, identifying as um, sort of equivalent with game. And then it's also the the reinforcer afterwards. So when the dog is steady or when the dog performs the desired behavior, then that is the reinforcer that they're released to get. So, so the byproduct of all of that is the dog usually after the course really, really loves the flirt pole or the tuggy. And you then have an alternative reinforcer that you can take out there into the world with you to hopefully um, use around game. So the other thing I would say is it's worth looking back for a previous podcast episode where I pulled out some highlights from interviews with Jane Arden and Leanne Smith. And it was all about developing value in alternative reinforcers and how to do that and why that's important. And so you should look back and find that episode and have a listen to it. The thing that I would say is that it, you definitely want to be doing it now in puppyhood. And if your pup is already six months old, you don't want to waste any more time. You want to get onto this because I tend to find that when dogs are sort of adolescent or adult and they've not really played with many toys and they don't have a strong history of loving to play tug or loving to play with a flirt pole or loving, I don't know, chase tennis balls, for example, sometimes that works better. Um, they They just don't have much interest in toys at all. Then yet they have a lot of hunting sort of um, interest, let's, let's say, hunting drive, um, and they discover game, then they get really kind of addicted to that game. It's like doggy crack, they're like on it, and they've got no interest in anything else. And it's really hard to work with those dogs. It's really hard. Those dogs will usually refuse food in the presence of game because they're too aroused to be able to eat the food. And that's where the alternative reinforcer comes in, because usually the alternative reinforcer, if it's a flirt pole or something, the dog can, even when that aroused, can direct that arousal onto the flirt pole instead. So it kind of replaces the game that they want to chase. Instead, they get a chase on the flirt pole. So they still have an outlet for this behavior that they want to display. They're just not um, performing it on the game itself. They're transferring it across to your reinforcer instead. I hope this is making sense. And that's a switch that needs practice. But before you go out there into contact with game, or in your case, lizards, um, you need to kind of build, you need to have a strong history of that being a reinforcer, your flirt pole, your tuggy, whatever it is. That has to be like, you have to make that doggy crack first. And the time to do that is puppyhood, because that is the time you want to get in there if you can. Um, sometimes you get difficult pups that just don't like toys and it can all be a little bit difficult. But that aside, it's important to try to build these alternative reinforcers because they'll just be so useful in the future. Um, it's just so much easier to work with these dogs if they really value 
you know, the flirt pole or the tuggy. So um, don't delay, get onto that. And yes, the online course Steady is the answer to it as well. And the other thing I would say in terms of using these um, alternative reinforcers, as it were, is that the, at first, well, the key thing to say is that the further off your body the reinforcer is, the more the dog is likely to to find it reinforcing. So a flirt pole, which is a really, really long horse lunging whip, for example, means that the the tuggy on the end of the flirt pole is quite a long way away from your body. So it looks like it's separate to you. It looks like it's a little animal. It looks like it's a long way away. And that means it's much more interesting to the dog because it it just it's not so clearly something that you're moving about, if that makes sense. So that is the place to start. When you then have the dog addicted to this flirt pole, which is really long, horse lunging whip, then you can use a shorter flirt pole. And when that is working well, you can use your sort of chaser tug toy. So you've got your your fluffy tug on the end of a of a chaser. A chaser is like just a long sort of cord that is tied to the tug. So you can like move it around, but it is further away from your body. And then you can even, well, you could stick with that, to be honest, or you can move to a short tug. Um, but often it's, you can fit a chaser tug in your pocket, so that's not a problem. So I know at first it seems a bit sort of impractical to have this massive flirt pole thing, but you can, once you've got your dog addicted to that, you can move, you can gradually move them, move them away from that to something that's more practical to carry around with you. So that is the other thing that I would say there. Um, so um, I'm not going to go into how to determine when the dog is ready to train her first domestic bird exposure, train these, how to train these first experiences and all that, because that is a big subject. And you first need to establish your alternative reinforcer and get your dog addicted to flirt pole tuggies and all that sort of thing. Um, other thing to talk about is your lizards, I think. So, I mean, it can be difficult when you've got a dog which which has a lot of hunting drive to stop them from attaching this to anything that they can around them. So some dogs or puppies will do this with flies. So they'll see flies in the room, which will stalk and point and kind of pounce on and flush. So it becomes about flies or butterflies. So it's really hard to stop the dog from finding some outlet for this because they just are going to stick it on anything that it can possibly stick on around them. So if, they, if they're not exposed to birds, because you're kind of protecting them from that, they will apply it to other things around you. Um, often I find that when they're then introduced to birds and they realise what this is all about, then that kind of takes over and their interest in lizards or flies or whatever usually diminishes because they know what they're really supposed to be hunting, as it were. Um, and so they don't really have a need to stick it on these other these other things anymore they kind of grow out of that so i hope that helps a little bit um should i use a toy with a pheasant scent that would be more reinforcing well i don't really find that those artificial scents work very well to be honest i don't find that they smell to the dog at all like the thing they're supposed to smell like i don't know what they're made of but they don't seem to work. <laughs> um, my dogs are not very interested in those smells and they definitely don't think they smell anything like the thing they're supposed to smell like. So I think that's probably not going to be very helpful. And am I doing the right thing in not giving her any outside off-leash time as a management strategy? So, I mean, that depends on the area where she would be off-leash. If it's an area which is securely fenced in and you know there's nothing in it, like bunnies or lizards um, or birds or any, anything that she might want to chase, then you can let her off leash in that area. But if it's an area that might contain any of those things, then you probably want to have her on a long line at least. And you want to be working on all of your training, as we just talked about before. So focus on you, um, retrieving. Um, it's just basically the more training that you can do with her where you are providing the reinforcer, the better. So all of that and your recall as well, of course. So the difficulty starts to happen when people have puppies or young dogs that need exercise and yet they can't give them that exercise because that involves them having access to birds and lizards and, you know, stuff like that. So 
you want to make sure that you have your recall because your recall in itself is a great form of exercise, especially if there's two people. If there's two people, then you can stand at a distance from each other and you can practice calling the dog backwards and forwards between you. And that provides a lot of physical exercise as well as training your recall. You can also do retrieves. So once you've got a reliable retrieve, you can you know, have your spare person go and stand out in front of you and throw the, the dummy or the bumper. And if you don't have a spare person, you can do memory retrieves and, you know, you choose a distance that you walk away to. So all of that is going to be providing exercise as well for the dog. But you, that's one thing you're going to be thinking about. How can I provide exercise whilst just not letting the dog run about freely everywhere? Because that is fraught with danger. Um, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to have a well-trained dog, um, so I think that I've probably touched on some helpful things there, but my main points would be go back and listen to this previous podcast episode where I am pulling out useful things from Jane Arden and Leanne Smith to, to talk about alternative reinforcers and developing a, an alternative reinforcer and also enroll on my steady course on my website, which is forcefreegundog.com. Okay, everybody, I have definitely waffled enough this week and I am going to leave it here. So if you've got any questions about anything, you can feel free to email me at joe at forcefreegundog.com. Check out my website, forcefreegundog.com, and check out my book on Amazon, Force Free Gundog Training. So I think that's all for this week, and we will leave it there. Have a very good time, and I'll speak to you soon. Ding, 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 ding,